be reading now from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Gad will stand forever. I heard a sermon preached out of this a couple decades ago. It's been a while, and it helped me a great deal. The, the book of Hebrews is, is geared toward helping us understand what reality is over and against the types and shadows that Israel was given in the Old Testament. And over and over again, these types and shadows were shown to be have their fulfillment in Christ, and that Christ was the better reality. Why is it that as we go out forth from here and we're involved in the daily events of our lives that touch this and taste and see that we lose track of the greater reality that we know is there by faith, that we have embraced in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are reminded about on Sundays. My hope and prayer is that um, as that message helped me so many decades ago that having understanding maybe a better uh, picture of what God is trying to tell us about the reality of where we are really and truly called and that's especially true when we're gathered together in worship, the things that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. <clears throat> it's sight versus faith. We're actually taught in the book of Hebrews that faith is, in part, a knowledge of the unseen that is as certain as the things that we can see. The reality of creation and God's kingdom is bigger and more glorious than what we can see. The context in the whole book of Hebrews, as I mentioned, it's written to those familiar with the old covenant way of life, the Jews. And the book's entire structure and flows based on direct comparisons and contrasts of familiar doctrines and the tenets of the Old Testament with their glorious fulfillment in Christ of the New Covenant, teaching the true meaning of all the Old Testament types and shadows along the way. It's kind of like what it would have been to be those two unnamed 
apostles, disciples that walked with Christ after he rose again from the dead. And they were on their way to Emmaus, and Christ spoke to them about the promises and the laws and the prophets. And they testified later how their hearts burned within them as Christ revealed those truths to them and what they really meant. And they realized the truth was much bigger than what they thought it was. The reality of all those things that they've been living and steeped in was much bigger and much more glorious and beautiful. This passage in Hebrews chapter 12 is an inducement to persevere. In verses 1, 3, and 15, and 25, repeatedly we're, we're told to endure, to finish the race, and not fall from the grace of God. And it immediately follows chapter 11, in which these powerful examples of the Old Testament saints who lived by faith of the one to come is set before us. Folks who saw past what they can see with their eyes into the promises of God and the much more glorious realities of His kingdom. We have in verses 18 through 24 the same contrast between old and new being set before us, showing forth the wonderful reality of life in Christ over the dead symbols of Moses, touch, see, smell, hear, versus the greater reality that we can know and experience by faith now and the promised glory to come. It's used here in context to provide the hearers with the encouragement and the heart motive to persevere and not fall away. The picture painted here is that of an awesome nature of the kingdom to which we've been called. The incredible privilege that the church has, the church being the heavenly Jerusalem, and that we've been granted that privilege even now before its eternal glorification. And the grand assembly described here in these verses is what we are raised up to in worship every Lord's Day. Do you realize that? That there's much more going on right now than meets the eye? Every once in a while we get that. If we, you know, we say at GCC that we're about delighting in God and authentic worship And more often than not, I can say with thanksgiving that my heart burns within me when I'm in this place on Sunday morning. That's why I'm here. That's why I stay here. We're raised up to a place much greater than the place that we seem to be mired in down here where things that we can touch, see, and smell. The writers are saying, you may not be able to see what's really going on, but I'll tell you what's really going on. It's like when Elisha's servant woke and saw an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and he cried, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, 
The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The writer of Hebrews is trying to do that same thing to teach us what's really going on, what the reality of this Mount Zion that we're called to is. So every Lord's Day we should be raised by faith to the true reality of what is to come to what it is to come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. How and why is because God is here. We're being brought near to Him to be awakened from our sleep as Jacob was in the passage that Justin read earlier when he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So let's look at these seven verses. The author wants us to see two places, this contrast that I mentioned, the place that can be touched, one of sight and sound, and the real place that we're called and raised to, and its much more glorious reality. And more importantly, the persons in that place, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First, the place that can be touched. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Touched that which is tangible, earthy. Why is it that so much that comes to our five senses scares the daylights out of us? It's because we're reminded of our creatureliness, of our dependence, of our inability. Every Sunday morning, the elders gather to pray before the worship service, and invariably, every Sunday morning, one of the elders prays that we can overcome the concerns of the week, all those things that we get all tied up with, all those things that perhaps even this morning many of us were all kind of tied in knots over before we came here, that that the Lord will allow us to overcome those and that He would lift us up to bring Jesus near. That's that's our prayer, to really see the reality that, that we're called to by faith. That's what worship should do for us. It shouldn't bring us to this place of fear and smoke and blackness, this place of Mount Sinai, when we read from Genesis 20, which is what's being referred to here. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so terrible was this sight that even Moses was afraid. It's interesting that the words of Moses that are given here are not recorded for us in the Old Testament, but it's likely Jewish tradition. But the writer of Hebrews, now it's inscripturated, we can trust it, that this is what Moses said. Moses was afraid. It scared the daylights out of him. This terrible place, fear, a natural and certain byproduct of knowing 
a few things. I've already mentioned our dependence and our inability. But being brought near to God, there's a knowledge of His holiness and of our own sinfulness. This is a necessary place that we have, have some, spent some time at, for sure. Otherwise, how could we possibly really appreciate our Savior? We're reminded in Romans 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But is this the place in which you've been called, Mount Sinai? Is that what you crave after right now in this worship service? Is fear and terror going to guard us from falling from the grace of God? Is the knowledge of our dependence and inability where we're left? There's no grace in this place that's described here. The sad thing about Israel is that they were so tied up in these types and shadows and so deceived by the law that they thought that that was their way, even why the true way, that true ladder that Justin mentioned, was standing right in front of them. They were deceived by what they could see and not by what the promise was. And we have that same issue and we were reminded about that probably this afternoon when we got some other thing that breaks all of a sudden and we got to deal with it. And we're scrambling to fix it. And we forget about that bigger picture. If we think that now by my own strength I got to do something here. Indeed, we are dependent creatures. Indeed, God is holy. Indeed, you and I are sinners, but... Jesus Christ has risen. He has borne our sins. He was wounded and died for our transgressions, punished in full satisfaction of God's justice on our behalf. Nothing to fear from what the world can dish out or from God himself. The real place that we're called and raised to is Mount Zion. This is the contrasted place that the writer of Hebrews wants us to really see and to understand. But you have come to Mount Zion. Interesting that it's present tense. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is Mount Zion he's talking about, not Sinai. And Mount Zion that he's talking about isn't the southernmost hill in physical Jerusalem that he's talking about, for this is the place that cannot be touched, a place not tangible but spiritual. Christ mentioned this to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming 
and is now here when the true worshipers will, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Mount Zion isn't a place of physical touching or hearing or seeing or smelling. We're all tied up in those things all week, and those things serve to, to obscure the bigger picture, the reality that the writer of Hebrews is trying to impress upon us. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the invisible church, the bride of Christ, that's what we're brought to. In Revelation 21, we, this is also described to us in more detail. Think about this in the context of worship. Certainly, it's talking about the glory to come. But there's a reason why the writer of Hebrews mentions this now and gives it this name, the city of the living God, is because there's a reality to that already, now, present tense, apprehended by faith. Look out here now, it might not seem like much, but God is telling us through this writer, this is the reality that we need to grasp. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are the bride of Christ, the city, the heavenly Jerusalem, even gathered here now. That's our state in Jesus Christ. The writer goes on, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Did you know that we're joined with the angels themselves as we are raised up to heavenly places in Christ? As He's given us that ladder, that access in Christ, that there are innumerable angels worshiping with us now? Why not? Why wouldn't they be interested in what's going on down here? We'll read that they have a fascination in what God is doing in this world with us. And that fascination would be magnified in worship. John Gill, in his commentary on this verse, he says, These angels are created spirits, immaterial and immortal, very knowing and very powerful and swift to do the will of God. They are holy and immutably so, being the elect of God and confirmed by Christ. And saints now are brought into a state of friendship with them and into the same family and are social worshipers with them. And they have access into heaven where angels are and with whom they shall dwell forever. And in the present state of things, they share the benefit and advantages of their kind offices. 
who have sometimes provided food for their bodies, healed their diseases, directed and preserved them on journeys, prevented outward calamities, delivered them out of them when in danger, restrained things hurtful and cut off their enemies. And with regard to things spiritual, they have sometimes made known the mind and will of God unto the saints. Jesus actually promised that to the apostles. They need not write anything down, but the Lord will bring to remembrance everything that they should write. Having comforted them under their distresses, helped them against Satan's temptations, are present at their death and carry their souls to glory and will gather the saints together at the last day. And as to the number of them, they are innumerable. There are the armies of heaven, and there is a multitude of the heavenly host. There are more than twelve legions of angels. Their number is ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands and thousands. This makes both for the glory and the majesty of God, whose attendants they are, and for the comfort and safety of saints to whom they minister, and about whom they encamp. What is it about worship? Oftentimes we're kind of tied to this, you know, being directly related, our ability to worship, to how many people are kind of around us on those Sundays where attendance seems to be low, that it's more difficult to worship. And when this place is full and all those voices are there, it's a whole lot easier to worship. If we had the faith to understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking to us here about, what God is telling us about, is that... There are millions of angels joining us in worship. Would they refrain from singing with us praises to God as we worship? We love hearing our voices. We love our ensemble. We love the voices and the talent the Lord has brought us here. Can you imagine the sound from God's perspective? as millions of angels also join us? Would they be absent in our worship as we climb Jacob's ladder, which is Christ, to the very dwelling place with them? Christ actually mentioned this to Nathaniel when he was bringing him into the fold of the apostleship. When he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter, like from now and going forward, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The writer continues, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In a few minutes we we will probably confess either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And we often do this, one of those creeds, just before we take the supper that we believe in the Catholic or universal church. Did you know that we are all at Mount Zion together? And that it's our privilege, being the firstborn in Christ, that if you can see with the eyes of faith the millions of worshipers right now raising their voices to in the combined assembly that appears before God and the angels in heaven, Can you grab hold of God's perspective of worship? It's not just us at GCC. There are millions of worshipers 
this morning. God sees them. The heavenly angels see them. This great spectacle as we worship together in faith with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And this next one always gets me. <clears throat> and I think there's none of us here that are, haven't experienced this situation. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are spirits that have preceded us to the church triumphant, as we read in Revelation 6. You know, some churches have some pretty famous people worshiping with them. And they glory in the fact that this or that celebrity is there, and it's easy to do. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that we've got some pretty, pretty famous people worshiping with us because Abraham is here, and King David is here, and Isaac and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There in the church triumphant, and the glorious nature of worship Apprehended by faith, not by sight, is that we've got some amazing people worshiping with us. Paul, all of the apostles, Jonathan Edwards, some of your heroes in the Reformation, they join us. My dad, perhaps your loved ones who have preceded you to glory And there are other persons in this place. The writer says, And to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mount Zion is often spoken of in in type and in shadow as the dwelling place of God. In Isaiah 8, Behold, I and the children with whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Men have always wished to take themselves to where God dwells, to to where He is. We have the the story of the Tower of Babel and how left to our own devices, what we'll do to try to get there, to try to be where God is. Let's build us a tower. Instinctively, we know that we need to go up as opposed to down. This, this firmament that we need to cross, this seemingly impassable boundary. The wonder of it is that, as we read in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We are there. God brings us there in the worship, brings us near. We are there now. We have come to Mount Zion. We have been raised with Christ, Ephesians 2, raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we do so now by faith because we as the church militant traverse that ladder kind of figuratively both ways too. We climb that ladder today 
in worship, to be near and figuratively as we go out from here to get involved in this world. But to remember that greater reality is always there. These verses here don't necessarily describe worship exclusively. Mount Zion is our state. We're there. It's certainly a, something that becomes that much closer in our ability to be able to understand it and to be raised there and have that burning in our heart happens during worship. And if we can remember that and carry that out this week as we climb back down that ladder, that that reality is still true. Certainly we are in the presence of God himself, omnipresent, never absent, especially in worship. Even as we prayed in our invocation that he would be here and claiming his promise. And remember that as we are taught also in Hebrews, as the writer compares the old and the new, that only the high priest came into his presence, not without blood, they would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest so that we went in behind that curtain that if something happened to him while he was in there, if he just fell over, had a stroke or something, nobody else could go in there to get him out. So they put a rope around him so they could drag him out in case, in case something happened. That exclusive access is no more. The blood being spoken of here The blood of Christ is ours. That curtain was torn in two. And we all have the privilege of his presence in worship. Yet we have the promise of Christ's presence in worship. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. What would this place be? What would Mount Zion be without Christ himself? What is any place without Jesus Christ? What are our homes, our places of work, our cars as we drive around? All of this blessing about which we have been hearing is due to him, the mediator of the new covenant. We don't come here because we're so special. And he hasn't done this, as Justin said, because we're able to climb a ladder. It's because of something that he's done. It's finished. We have this blood, this sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel speak? Guilty. We're done for with the blood of Abel. That's why when we're out there in the world with the touch and feel and the senses, we have this dread, this fear that often comes into our hearts when we forget the greater reality because that's our state without Christ, without the blood that speaks a better thing than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus Christ cries out, Innocent! So I want to close with just two quick challenges. If and when we're weary, when we're afraid, when our feet are slipping, when our strength is weakness, consider 
as these verses are meant to teach and to remind us that it is to Mount Zion to which we have come and to which we have been brought by Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived by what you see, taste, and smell. And here, there is a greater reality. In a few minutes, we're going to actually see, taste, touch, and smell these elements. This is God recognizing our frailty so that even our senses, He wants to bring our senses to, be, to know by faith that what happened, that what we're tasting here and touching and smelling is Christ crucified, dead and buried in His righteousness given to us. The test, the tastes, sights, and sounds and smell of the world might scare us, but these should serve to encourage us. And next Sunday morning, or at your very next opportunity to worship, take advantage of the quiet moment of preparation before the call to worship to remind yourself what you're about to do and about the glorious company that we're called to, about the Mount Zion that we're called to, the reality of what's really taking place. It should serve to give us all goosebumps when we think about what we're called to. And may God impress us with these words to help us to endure as He intends. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we all struggle with remembering the reality of the kingdom that you have called us to. It's so easy to be overwhelmed by even the most mundane circumstances of the world. Just something breaking unexpectedly can send us often to a a state of fear, of uncertainty, of in, knowing our inability, of wondering if and when we can fix this or that. But there's much more than that, Father, that, that besets your people in this world. But we know that even those things, though those things are real, that there's a much greater reality the reality of Mount Zion to which all of your children have been called. Thank you, Father, for raising us up to that place today. Pray that you would bless us every Lord's Day to raise us up continually to remember and be set before Christ and to hear his voice and to rejoice at what he has done and is doing and has promised to do. For we ask in his name, amen.